It's January 1980. We're in the Central American nation of Panama on the small island of Contadora. Despite being just under a kilometre and a half in size and inhabited by less than 300 people, the island has attracted much attention from news broadcasters from around the world, all thanks to its newest resident. David Frost, a British TV journalist, is here to interview them. Frost is no stranger to interviewing powerful individuals. He's held meetings with prime ministers and presidents on numerous occasions. He's even interviewed Muhammad Ali. But the meeting between Frost and his latest guest, given the context of the past year's events, makes this a very special interview indeed. He sits in front of the cameras and awaits his guest. It's not long before he arrives. Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, the deposed Shah of Iran, enters the room. Dressed in an expensive suit and tie, he shakes Frost's hand and settles down. By all accounts, he looks well composed, but there's an air of sadness and defeat surrounding him. As Frost questions him, the Shah reflects bitterly on the state of his nation. So all those forces which were liberated and we should have established this beautiful democracy. Where are they today? One and a half million people, Iranians, have left the country. Not only the rich, but the best brains of the country, the best minds of the country, they have all left. Everybody who can leave the country is leaving the country. So where are those people in the Bar Association and in other places who were promising democracy in these things, where are they today? In 50 years' time, how will future Iranians judge you? Well, if they read history, they will see what it was before my father, when it, what it was when I took over, and what it was when I left. After their meeting, the Shah bids Frost farewell and departs. This interview, broadcast on ABC News, would be his last. He would die not long after, finally succumbing to the cancer he had been fighting against for years. Mohammad Reza Shah, the King of Kings, suffered one of the most dramatic falls from grace of any 20th century leader. He went from leading a rapidly modernising power, on track to being ranked among the most advanced global economies, only to be toppled in a popular revolution, forced into exile, and his old dominion deteriorating into a pariah state. The revolution that gave rise to the Islamic Republic drastically shifted the course of history for the entire region. Almost 45 years later, Iran's regime has been grappling for months with anti-government protests, sparked by the death of a 22-year-old woman, Masar Amini, while in police custody. While the mass demonstrations have subsided in recent weeks, questions have been asked about whether this regime could fall to a popular revolution, much like the one that gave rise to it in the first place. In this episode, We'll be imagining an alternate timeline in which the Iranian revolution never happened. 
What would Iran have looked like had the Shah been able to maintain his position? What would life be like for the Iranian people? And how would this impact the geopolitics of the Middle East? All these questions and more will be explored in the following episode. My name's Tom DeLaghi, and you're listening to What If the Iranian Revolution Never Happened in another episode of This Is Not History. Before heading straight into this scenario, let's make sure we're all caught up on some historical context. So, the land the modern-day nation of Iran composes today has been fought over by many powerful empires over the millennia. The Achaemenids, Parthians, the Neo-Persians, to name just a few, were all major powers during their respective eras. Iran's contributions to the development of our civilization have been really significant as well. During the Islamic Golden Age, advancements in the realms of medicine, mathematics and philosophy can all be traced back here. During the 16th century, the country was converted from the Sunni branch of Islam to the Shia branch. To this day, Iran has the largest number of Shia Muslims in the world. However, despite being a great power back in its heyday, Iran slowly began to fall behind its rivals. As European economies increasingly industrialised, Iran was unable to maintain its sovereignty and territorial integrity in the face of these new threats. By the late 19th century, Iran was not in a position to be able to withstand the pressure from foreign powers and was forced to give up big chunks of its land. This series of national humiliations led to several waves of protests taking place in the country over the years, leading to major developments. The year 1905 saw Iran's first constitution being drafted and the creation of the Majiles, Iran's parliament. This was a period of blossoming political debate as Iranians began to forge a new age for the country. Civil unrest remained high, however, and foreign encroachment onto their territory continued. With the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, Iran found itself in a disastrous position. Despite having an official policy of neutrality, the country was again unable to stop more powerful nations from pushing them around. In 1925, the parliament deposed the previous leader and installed Reza Khan, an officer in the military as the new Shah. With this, the Pahlavi dynasty was born. Reza Shah led Iran for the next two decades, enacting secular policies which attracted support from the middle classes but alienated the Shia clergy. He commissioned development projects to improve the country's infrastructure, which required help from outside. British commercial interests in Iran had now been well established for years. The Anglo-Iranian oil company held the right to the oil fields in the south of the country, an incredibly valuable resource in the 20th century. When the Second World War broke out in 1939, the British ordered the Shah to expel all German citizens from his realm out of fear that they would sabotage their oil fields. Once the Soviets had entered the fray, both they and the British sought to secure Iran from falling under German influence. 
in August 1941, they launched a surprise invasion, catching the Iranians off guard and forcing them to surrender within a week. Reza Shah was forced to abdicate. His son took over the throne, adopting the mantle of Mohammad Reza Shah. The new Shah wished to continue the reforms his father had begun implementing before him. However, Parliament was increasingly becoming an obstacle to his plans. In 1951, the Parliament appointed a nationalist Prime Minister into office, named Mohammad Mossadegh. He too had a vision to modernise Iran, although it came into conflict with the Shahs. Mossadegh identified the involvement of foreign powers in Iran's internal affairs as a leading cause for Iran's weakness and sought to overturn it. Britain's control of the Iranian oil fields was a major issue for him as the profits could be used to transform Iran for the better. In aid of this, Mossadegh nationalised the Anglo-Iranian oil company. This was immensely popular at home, but caused uproar in Britain who saw this as nothing but an act of theft. This crisis saw the majority of European countries, as well as the United States, supporting Britain, and the Royal Navy implemented an embargo. This issue persisted for years. Mossadegh refused to reverse his nationalisation of the company, and so, in 1953, the British decided that there was only one thing for it. Prime Minister Winston Churchill decided that a coup to overthrow Mossadegh was required in order to secure British interests. Since the Second World War, however, Britain's strength had waned. They weren't the global power they once were, and needed American support to pull this off. The British played on America's fear of communism, claiming that Iran was at risk of falling under the influence of the Soviet Union under Mossadegh. While this claim was a gross exaggeration, it was a surefire way of getting the Americans to agree to help. With the US on board, the Shah was informed in advance by the CIA of the planned coup. While he initially opposed it, despite his disagreements with Mossadegh, he relented after they threatened to depose him too. This Anglo-American-backed coup was launched on August 15, 1953 after a series of violent clashes involving quote-unquote protesters and a few occasions where it looked as if Mossadegh would manage to retain his position, he was ousted by August the 19th. Mossadegh was arrested by the army and was placed under house arrest. The Shah, who had fled to Italy in all the chaos, was flown back to Tehran. The whole episode left him in awe and gave him a great respect for American global power but it also gave him the reputation of a ruler propped up by foreign powers. It's important to be aware of the scale of Western interference in Iran to understand this alternate scenario, as it truly laid the groundwork for the 1979 revolution. So, after this coup, there was a significant boost to the Shah's power, which allowed him to implement his reforms without parliament undermining him. In 1963, the Shah announced an ambitious campaign of modernisation known as the White Revolution, which aimed at redistributing wealth to the working classes and to dismantle the remnants of Iran's feudal systems. In the coming years, the Shah pushed for modernisation of infrastructure and the secularisation of society. Soon, Iran had become a significant economic and military power in the region. 
Despite these reforms, there were major issues with the Shah's rule. His government was highly active in suppressing dissent, with his notorious security service, Savak, arresting, torturing and sometimes killing those who they deemed a threat to the regime. So, despite the improvements to the standard of living in the country, the speed at which his agenda was put into action, coupled with the heavy-handed manner in which it was implemented, led to discontent amongst sections of the population. One of the groups who had grown dissatisfied were the clergy. They, and a significant portion of their devout followers, were apprehensive of the Shah's vision for a secularised Iran, and some were willing to go to great lengths to reverse this. Which brings us to discuss the now infamous man named Ruhollah Khomeini. A quick history lesson. Khomeini was born somewhere near the beginning of the 20th century, and was brought up studying the Quran at school. Growing up to become a devout Shia Muslim, Khomeini took up teaching at 27 and went to spend years lecturing in seminaries, becoming a prominent scholar on the subject. He was officially made Ayatollah, the highest level of authority in 12 Shia Islam, after the death of his predecessor in 1961. With the clergy now under his leadership, Khomeini staunchly opposed the White Revolution, viewing it as an attack on Islam. He published a manifesto along with other scholars accusing the Shah of submission to Iran's enemies, namely the United States of America, or the Great Satan, as Khomeini referred to it. The Ayatollah was detained by the Shah's security services in June 1963 for his descent, leading to riots breaking out across Iran. In three days, roughly 400 people were killed. In 1964, Khomeini was exiled. He spent the majority of these 15 years in Iraq, where he would continue lecturing. It was while in exile that he published a book known in English as Islamic Government, Governance of the Jurist. In it, he states that a government's laws should reflect Sharia or Islamic law, and as such, Islamic jurists must play an active role in government. By 1977, discontent in Iran had grown over the years. Notably, a so-called Islamic revival among young, educated Iranians had taken place, leaving Khomeini well-placed to become the face of the opposition to the Shah's rule. So, thanks to the Shah's misjudged reforms and Khomeini's fiery rhetoric, Iran had become a bonfire and they would not have to wait long for a spark to ignite it. On the 19th of August 1978, the cinema Rex in Abadan was set ablaze. In the ensuing tragedy, between 370 and 470 people were killed making it the largest ever terrorist incident at the time. The Shah's government blamed Islamic militants for the fire, while revolutionary groups blamed the Shah's security services. Many Iranians believed the latter and were enraged, becoming active participants in the growing opposition to the Shah's regime. In the wake of the increasing demonstrations, where some protesters were calling for the creation of an Islamic Republic led by Khomeini, the Shah declared martial law, more protesters were killed, 
and a general strike was called in October 1978. In the meantime, while all this was going on, Khomeini was still in exile. The Shah's government pressured Iraq to expel Khomeini in order to isolate him further from the revolutionaries in Iran. He left Iraq and moved to France, but this just gave him better communication technology to fan the flames of protest in Iran. Khomeini allied himself temporarily to secular opposition members to the Shah in order to soften the image of his movement. In early November, the Shah appeared on Iranian television. He acknowledged the mistakes his regime had made and offered to form a coalition government with opposition leaders. The opposition sensed the regime was desperate and Khomeini openly called for Iranians to overthrow him. By this point, about 10% of all Iranians were out on the streets. As well as this, the Iranian army was crumbling in the face of mutinies and popular revolts. There were other major protests during these final months. I could go into them, but seeing that this podcast claims to be not historical, I'll fast forward to the bit that we're all waiting for. On the 16th of January 1979, Mohammad Reza Shah and his wife boarded a flight to Egypt. This would be the last time he ever saw his homeland. The remnants of his government dissolved Savak and invited the Ayatollah back. Khomeini flew back to Iran on the 1st of February and was welcomed by millions of Iranians upon his arrival. They were reportedly chanting, Khomeini, O Imam, we salute you, peace be upon you. When asked how he felt to be back home, Khomeini replied, nothing. Khomeini denounced the government and declared his own rival provisional revolutionary government. In the final days, rebels acquired arms and distributed them to civilians in support of Khomeini. Vicious skirmishes began to rage throughout Iran between these rebels and the ailing government. On the 11th of February, all army personnel were ordered to return to their bases, effectively giving the revolutionary forces control of the entire country. With this, the government collapsed and Khomeini had won. For the average Iranian, life changed dramatically in the following months. The imperial state of Iran was remodelled into an Islamic republic. By the end of the year, a new constitution was approved, bringing the country's governance more in line with Khomeini's interpretation of Shia Islam. Women were required by law to cover their hair, alcohol was banned, the legal age for marriage was lowered to 15 years for boys, and 13 for girls. He called for the extermination of homosexuals, comparing them, as well as adulterers and prostitutes, to thieves and murderers. For anyone at the time hoping that Iran would become a more liberal society, these were truly dark days. The impact of the revolution on the international stage was widespread. The birth of a revolutionary Islamic theocracy, calling for the overthrow of the established political order, capitalism and American influence across the world, was always going to be a major occurrence. In the West, the reaction to the fall of the Shah was mainly negative. For the US specifically, this was a major strategic blow. 
They had allowed a Western-friendly government to collapse in favour of a doggedly anti-American theocracy. A tense dispute soon broke out between the new regime and the Carter administration when the exiled Shah was admitted into the US for cancer treatment. This caused uproar in Iran, and in retaliation, the American embassy in Tehran was occupied by a group of Khomeini supporters. The Iranian hostage crisis, as the event came to be known, saw 52 US diplomats being held captive for 444 days. They were eventually released on January 20th, 1981. Meanwhile, the revolution sent a shockwave across the Middle East. Khomeini called for the overthrow of monarchies and secular governments in favour of new Islamic republics, which seriously freaked out Iran's neighbours. We'll dig deeper into the geopolitical state Iran was in after the revolution in the next section, as it plays a large role in the alternative scenario I've written. So, that's how the revolution happened. But what if it didn't? What if, in an alternate timeline, the Iranian revolution never occurred, and the Shah remained in power? How would this change Iran domestically? And how different would the situation be in the Middle East today? Well. Let's find out. So, what would need to happen differently in this scenario for the revolution not to happen? In this case, I don't think there's one easily identifiable factor which acted as the catalyst to the toppling of the Shah. There were numerous things that could have been used, but without Khomeini's fiery opposition to the Shah's reforms radicalising the opposition, the revolution would not have happened. Certainly not in the way it panned out in real life. Because of that, I'm going to cop out slightly and just remove Khomeini from this scenario completely. He was pretty old by the time he became an influential figure. So, let's say at some point in the early 1960s, Khomeini dies before he is made Ayatollah and before he's exiled. This means that he never becomes the face of the opposition nor would he become a martyr for the movement to continue without him. He dies before he becomes too much of a problem for the Shah to handle. So, in a world where Khomeini dies early, what happens next? Mohammad Reza Shah would still begin the implementation of his white revolution in 1963, although perhaps for this scenario to work, the pace of change would need to be slower to allow for the population to adjust to the new changes without angering them. Steps would be taken to redistribute wealth throughout Iranian society, urbanise the country, enfranchise women, expand education and improve literacy in rural areas. Reforms aimed at the secularisation of Iran would still be opposed by the Shia clergy, backed by a sizeable chunk of the people. However, without the leadership and oration of Khomeini, these sentiments aren't spread to other sections of the population. While these would all make advancements to modernise the country, the reforms would by no means be perfect. The Shah wished to improve the living standards of his people and the position of Iran on the world stage, but I don't think a complete transition to democracy played a major part of his vision for the country. Thus, Savak would continue to suppress dissenting voices, putting out fires deemed a threat to the regime. Protests against authoritarianism would still happen, but again, without Khomeini, they don't manifest into a revolutionary movement. 
In this alternate scenario, the morality police the Islamic Republic uses today to enforce strict social norms wouldn't exist. The suppression of liberal attitudes in Iranian society we see today wouldn't happen. It would in fact be encouraged from the top down. Women could dress more freely, discos and cinemas showing western films would be popular destinations for Iranians. Further along down the line, this alternate Iran could become a popular destination for tourists to enjoy the warm weather, cuisine and culture, similar to how Turkey is viewed today. In the coming years, the White Revolution would be looked back on as a turning point for Iran's people, raising the living standards and providing opportunities for millions. As for the Shah personally, no amount of economic reforms would cure him of his cancer. Mohammad Reza Shah would still die around 1980. His eldest son, Crown Prince Reza Pahlavi, would be crowned Reza Shah II, the third ruler of his family dynasty. Providing that he continues with his father's legacy, perhaps under his rule the suppression of dissent by government forces would be dialed back. Moving on from just domestic matters, the reforms the Shah would continue to implement would also impact the military. Iran's geopolitical position would be very different in this alternate timeline. First of all, Iran's military is way more powerful than it would have been otherwise. During this period, the Iranian armed forces had been modernising rapidly. This transformed Iran into the undisputed regional power. However, in real life, the Iranian revolution caused a disastrous weakening of the armed forces that the Shah had so determinately built up. With Khomeini's rise to power, the army's desertion rate rose sharply to 60%, and the new regime purged the ranks of any suspected sympathisers to the Shah. Thus, without the revolution, the Iranian army would maintain its dominant position as the strongest military power. Iran's military situation would become more and more advantageous over time. As a result, I think the country would begin to embark on a new path in regards to its foreign policy. It would begin to act unilaterally to further its interest, growing less dependent on its alliance with America to achieve its aims. We saw the beginnings of this in real life, with Iran improving diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union and the rest of the communist bloc towards the end of the Pahlavi era. With this in mind, I think Iran would remain an American ally, but it would seek to increasingly assert its independence from the West. On to the second major change that would come about without an Islamic revolution. In this alternate timeline, Iran would have fundamentally different foreign policy objectives, and would thus face different rivals. As I've mentioned briefly, without Khomeini's revolution, Iran wouldn't try exporting his ideology across the Middle East, which is where a certain Saddam Hussein enters the story. For some context, Saddam Hussein was the Iraqi dictator at the time of the revolution. He, along with other Middle Eastern leaders, were concerned Iran would seek to spread its influence into neighbouring states. This was made extra concerning for Saddam, as Iraq's sizeable Shia population could potentially become radicalised by Khomeini's rhetoric and rise up against his Sunni regime. So, 
Saddam attempted to stamp out this new threat right on his border and launched an invasion of Iran in 1980. He hoped to take advantage of Iran's weakened military and to cement Iraq as the new power in the region. Unfortunately for him, the war didn't go as planned. Iran successfully counterattacked, and the subsequent eight years of horrendous war, which resulted in the deaths of between one and two million people, ended in a UN-brokered stalemate. Saddam may have thought he had a chance at beating a weakened and isolated Iran, but there were no illusions as to whether Iraq could have stood a chance against the Shah's modern and well-equipped armed forces. Couple that with the fact that Iran was also backed by allies like the United States, Saddam would never have invaded Iran, and the Iran-Iraq war never happens in this timeline. Both countries are spared eight years of horrendous violence, and the wars which spawned from that tragedy don't occur either. Without a war, Iraq doesn't rack up loads of debt with Kuwait and doesn't attempt to invade them to cancel it out. Without this invasion, the US-led coalition isn't launched to liberate Kuwait. There's no first Gulf War in this alternate timeline. Without the massive coalition, Saddam isn't made into this vilified figure in the West. Of course, he'd still end up doing a lot of pretty terrible stuff, but he wouldn't become a household name in the West in this alternate timeline. Could this mean that without Saddam's regime being relatively well known by the American public as a general bad thing, does this mean that the Americans don't launch an invasion of the country after the September 11th attacks? This may be stretching it a bit, but it's an interesting question to theorise. Anyway. Throughout the 1980s, Iran would remain the dominant force in the region and faces no real challenge to its military power. Speaking of challenges to Iran's power, it's time I address the elephant in the room, Saudi Arabia. In real life, a conflict has raged since 1979 between the Islamic Republic and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Labelled by some observers as a Cold War, both the Iranians and the Saudis are trying to undermine each other indirectly. Each sees the other as an existential threat to its own system. The Sunni conservative monarchy leading Saudi Arabia is the antithesis to the Shia revolutionary republican regime in Iran. Both states challenge each other's power via proxy wars, funding rebel groups in neighbouring countries, fighting for dominance across the whole of the Middle East. Since the Arab Spring of 2011, various regimes were brought down by popular revolution. The ensuing chaos led to the number of conflicts fuelled by this geopolitical rivalry to skyrocket. As power vacuums opened up all over the Middle East, Iranian and Saudi-backed forces fought one another. For example, in Syria, the government of Bashar al-Assad is supported by Tehran and has been locked in conflict with the Saudi-backed Free Syrian Army. In Yemen, the Saudis prop up the official government and wage war against the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels. In short, the current situation is highly volatile. However, in an alternate timeline without the Iranian revolution, this might not have been the case. 
Before 1979 in real life, the Iranians and the Saudis maintained cordial relations. They had their disagreements of course, like the vast cultural differences between the increasingly liberalising society under the Shah versus the Saudis' extremely conservative outlook. But both were allies of the United States and acted as twin pillars in maintaining peace in the region during the Cold War. Without Khomeini coming to power, I can imagine this cooperative Iranian-Saudi relationship continuing on through the 1980s. With the collapse of communism and the end of the Cold War, other Middle Eastern countries would ally with the Iranians and the Saudis. This NATO-style alliance could become a political force in its own right, distinct and separate from the West. Overall, this alternate history has major differences to what happened to Iran in real life. Mohammad Reza Shah's legacy is disputed. Some see him as the great moderniser of Iran, who oversaw a period of prosperity and growing strength. Others see him as a tyrant, imposed on the Iranian people by an Anglo-American coup, who attempted to force westernisation onto a deeply traditional country. As I see it, this alternate scenario is one where Iranian history pans out far more peacefully and prosperously without the events of 1979. The Shah's regime was highly authoritarian and oppressive, only coming to fruition thanks to an imperialist coup. But it's hard to look at the chaos that engulfed the Middle East as a result of the revolution and think that that was a better alternative. Looking at the state of Iran today, a strict theocracy, locked in a cold war, crippled by economic sanctions with widespread protests, I can only think about the potential Iran had to become a beacon of prosperity throughout the world. In his interview with David Frost, the Shah was asked, What do you miss most about it? What I miss, or what makes me really cry is that we could have been this year, surely by the end of 82, something quite viable. And what are we now? What has it served? Religion? Democracy? Human rights? The rule of the people? And with that, I think that's where we'll leave it for today's episode, in which I imagined a world where the Iranian revolution never happened. This Is Not History is written, produced and narrated by me, Tom Delaghi. Be sure to follow on Twitter at NotHistoryPod if you'd like to send ideas for potential episodes, and feel free to message me if you disagree with anything I've theorised in this scenario. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope to see you in the next episode of This Is Not History. <laughs>